Before we begin our Torah study, will you pray with me? Baruch atah Adonai, l'heinu melech ha'olam, asher kitshanu b'mitzvotav v'tivanu la'asok b'divrei Torah. Blessed are you, Lord our God, King of the universe, who sanctifies us with his commands and commands us to engross ourselves in the words of Torah. Amen. I want to talk to you this morning about being people who spread the good news. And to get started, I want you to take a moment and look at your own feet. Would you do that? Look at your feet. I mean, look at your shoes, if you don't mind. You don't have to take your shoes off. Look at your shoes. And let me ask you, what do you see? How many have on new shoes? One person. It's amazing. I asked this question of the congregation last night. No one had on new shoes. And so I knew everyone was wearing old shoes of some sort. And it looks like almost everybody except for Dale is wearing old shoes today. Congratulations, Dale. Now, I want you to to look at them the way Isaiah saw feet such as ours. Because he didn't just pay attention to shoes. He was thinking of the feet of people and how they can be beautiful. Isaiah 52 verse 7 puts it this way. How beautiful on the mountains are the feet of those who bring good news, who proclaim shalom, peace, who bring good tidings, who proclaim salvation, who say to Zion, your God reigns. Paul said that there's like a spiritual shoe that you can put on if you're a disciple of Yeshua. In Ephesians chapter 6, verse 15, he says... As shoes for your feet, you've put on the readiness or the preparation that's given to you by the gospel of peace, the good news of shalom. Now what I want you to do is I want you to look at the feet or the shoes of someone sitting next to you, if you can, and look with Paul's attitude and look with Isaiah's attitude, and then I want you just to speak a word of blessing to that person whose feet you're looking at. Bless them that they would be bringers of good news. Let the Lord pour out his power upon you, that you would bring good news. You're ready because you've received the good news. And it's lovely, it's beautiful. I like what Isaiah said. Here's the greater context that starts in Isaiah 52, verse 6. My people will know my name. How many of you are in favor of every Jewish person knowing the name Yeshua? My people will know my name. Therefore, in that day, I am the one who is speaking and saying, He named me. Yeshua is not hiding from our people. He's revealing himself. It goes on, verse 7, how lovely, how beautiful on the mountains are the feet of the one who brings good news, who announces peace and brings good news of happiness, who announces salvation. And in the Hebrew where it says salvation, it's using a form of the word Yeshua, who announces Yeshua, who proclaims Yeshua. There is good news, there's happiness both for the hearer and the proclaimer. 
It goes on and says to Zion, your God reigns. Listen, this is verse 8. Your watchmen lift up their voices. They shout joyfully together because they will see with their own eyes when the Lord restores Zion. What is the promise of God? He'll let you see the restoration of the Jewish people to himself under one condition, that you participate in that restoration. To be outside, to be distant, to be uninvolved, this is not the same thing as being an active participant. To be a true participant, you join in and you look for opportunity. I like Isaiah's perspective. He elaborates in an earlier part of his writings, Isaiah 40, verse 9, Oh, by the way, if you, some of you say, you know, it's hard to keep up. I can't turn to these passages as quickly as, as you call them out. I've got a little handy solution for you. You can open up your Facebook app on your iPhone, your iPad, or any digital source you've got right now. And you can go to the Beth Israel page, or you could go to the Messianic Jewish Teachings page, and you'll find every uh, scripture citation that I'm using today, along with the verses themselves, so that you'll be able to follow along with me. Now, it took a little work to get all that up. Not a lot of work, but a little work. And so if you use it, I'll keep doing it. If you don't use it, I'm not going to do the work. Um, So here's how I can tell if you're using it. You have to go online and look at those and uh, write a comment and just say anything. And those of you who wrote comments last night, thank you. I replied to everyone even in the middle of the night, regardless of uh, when you wrote. Isaiah 40, verse 9, you who bring good news to Zion. Who? You who bring good news. Not you who know the good news. Not you who believe the good news, but you who bring the good news. You go up on a high mountain, you who bring good news to Jerusalem, lift lift up your voice with a shout, lift it up, don't be afraid, say to the cities of Judah, here is your God. Don't be afraid. This speaks to something. There are many believers who are reluctant only because they're afraid. They're afraid of the response. Well, I want to encourage you, don't think about a negative response, think about the positive response. Every Jewish person who positively responds to the gospel, to the good news, will be grateful to you for having shared good news. Don't be afraid. God didn't give you a spirit of fear. Okay, you look down at your feet. Now I want you to look up. Look up, you can look up to the ceiling, you can look through the ceiling to the heavens. And I want you to think about what Yeshua said in John chapter 4, verse 35. He, he gave a, an instruction to his own disciples. He said, I want you to stop saying something. Stop saying there are yet four more months and then the harvest will come. Stop saying this. Stop saying later. Stop saying it's not for now. And he says, behold, I say to you, lift up your eyes. You know what that means? 
we're looking in the wrong place when we have that kind of attitude. Lift up your eyes and look where? At the fields. Because they are ripe. They are white for harvest. You see, Yeshua was saying that what you focus on will determine what you see. And if you're only looking down, or if you're only looking at circumstances around you, you're forgetting your own feet, if I can put it that way, that your feet were called to bring you to people who need good news. And the gospel that you've received prepares you to go to them. So as you've received good news, you need to be able to not just look inwardly and not just look at circumstances, but you need to look at the fields themselves. And by this, Yeshua is saying something. There are always Jewish people ready to hear the good news. They may not appear ready to you, but they're ready to the Lord. So you have to know who does he want you to send? Who does he want you to go to in order to bring good news to? Now, one of the easiest ways to determine who needs good news is to ask the simple question, who's in trouble? Any person who's in trouble needs good news. Do you agree with that? And when you when you pay attention to people who are in trouble, God can use you to bring good news. Antonio Cazares and I went down to the prison on this past Wednesday to visit uh, one of the men who is on death row. We've told you about him and he will find out on January 15th at a hearing the date of his execution. He committed two murders, one of them in prison. And as a result, he was found guilty of capital offenses and given the death penalty. When, when he was brought to trial, he said he was guilty. Since he committed those murders, he's had a change of heart, a spiritual change in himself. And he's begun to turn to the Lord. And so he asked for Antonio and me to serve as spiritual advisors, to walk with him through these last days and weeks that he has on this earth. And the question is, how do you bring good news to such a person who is guilty of such crimes. And it's not an easy assignment, I can tell you this, but as we had been praying, we understood that there is good news. The good news is that if you confess your sin before God, if you're full of remorse, if you repent, if you do everything that is in your power to make peace with those who you wronged, then you can come to the God who is merciful and offer up no excuses for yourself, but tell him the truth of your own sin and guilt. And to say, I have nothing righteous in me, but I, I trust only in one thing, that there is atonement for my sins. And that this is found in Yeshua. And so I come to you, Father, and I say, if you would be merciful to me, and forgive me. It's everything. 
This is a man who, who understands that he's on the brink of death, that he will be killed, he will lose his life. And what he's trying to receive guidance for is how does he make sure? What can he do at this point? What can he do so that he's not condemned to hell? That's how he put it. That's a hard assignment to give an answer to such a person. And so as we've been praying, we've told them, you know, very clearly, you need to have remorse. And in the first few conversations, he didn't. But something's been changing. When we gathered together and we were praying for him, and as a community praying for Antonio and for me and, and our counsel to him, the Lord showed me a picture of this man weeping and saying, I'm sorry to the Lord, and saying, I'm so ashamed. And he's having this transformation where he's coming clean with the Lord. And he's repenting. And he's realizing he needs to do everything he can to to confess this before the judges, before the survivors of the people whose lives he took. And rather than making excuses, he's coming clean. Now, it's not easy. We can't just say, oh, you're forgiven, hallelujah, everything is okay. It's not our job to judge him, but he's going to stand before a righteous judge. And he needs to know what to say. And if he has any hope to appeal to a God of mercy, he has to tell the honest truth and make no excuses. That's what he's preparing to do. You see, God will bring you to to people in trouble so that you can tell them what they can do in their times of trouble and how they can make peace with God, how they can get right with God. But you can't be afraid. You can't be wishy-washy. You can't say, well, you know, there are 10 different ways to do this. No, you've got to be very clear, very succinct. So I pray, Lord, show me how to bring truth to this man. Now, I, I told you that more than a month ago, we went to visit him and we were speaking very strongly about the need to be remorseful and to repent. It was really, it was strong. And that's when all the power in the prison went out. And we're sitting in this room just with him and us, completely dark, no lights come on. Our minds went all sorts of places. He quieted us and said, don't worry. We'll just sit here quietly till the power comes back on. Three lifetimes later, it did. (laughs) Now, it came back on, but we had peace from God because we were there as messengers of peace. Our minds were thinking what they were thinking, but our hearts and our spirits were at peace. That's what we noticed. 
And, and, and I tell you this because if you seek the Lord and say, God, bring me the opportunity to bring your good news to someone in trouble, he will put you into the midst of unstable, uncertain, difficult circumstances sometimes, even moments that could make you anxious, so that you then can bring a word of encouragement, of hope, and of peace to such people. So I pray, Lord, bring me, give me opportunity to share the good news with Jewish people. So wouldn't you know it that this prisoner whose, whose life will be ended soon, he has to uh, be evaluated by psychologists and psychiatrists to make sure that he's, he's competent, mentally competent. And wouldn't you know it that the, the chief doctor who is uh, assessing his mental condition is Jewish. And so now this guy is explaining to the Jewish doctor that he's, he's becoming messianic. And so he said the Jewish doctor is correcting his mispronunciations of Hebrew. He said, Shema. Have you ever heard that? I said, Shema. You know, we'll work that right with him. He had been taught, as many in, in prison, they, they hear some things about sacred name stuff, so they start saying Yahweh. I said, Jews don't say that. So don't you say, say Adonai or Hashem. We had a little Hebrew lesson, repeat after me, Adonai, Hashem. He, he, he did pretty well. And he said, the, the doctor, the Jewish doctor wants to talk to you. Will you are you willing to talk to him? <laughs> and I said, sure. You see, when you say to God, Hineni, because he's saying to you, Hineni, when you say to him, Hineni, he will use you and he will send you. Now, here's the problem. Yeshua put it this way in Luke chapter 10, verse 2. Yeshua was saying to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful. Say that with me. The harvest is plentiful. The problem is the workers are few. Big harvest, few people ready to work. Why do you think you've been given special shoes in the spirit? So that you can work. So you can go to people that need good news. Oh, I don't, I don't want to go to people in prison. Right. That's why we all pray, yes, Lord, send him. Send her. Send anybody. Not me. I don't have that calling. Actually, it's a much more simple response that the Lord's looking for. He wants us to say, he nay Lord. Here I am. Send me. Bring me into situations where I can be useful to you. It doesn't have to do with how you define your ministry. It has to do with how God defines his goals. And he knows how to connect you with people who need to hear the good news. I was remembering last night about um, the Holocaust ministry in Budapest. And for three years, Kati Shua Hanbauer 
was ministering faithfully to Jewish Holocaust survivors. And not one of them turned to the Lord through that ministry for three years. And she discovered, as she was seeking the Lord, that he wanted her to listen to them and to establish a place of safety, a place where they could begin to talk about what they went through. And so she was faithful to do that. And then one night, one night when they were meeting together, she was saying, Lord, what? And she prayed the most simple of prayers. It was in Hungarian, but it used a a Hungarian word that only Jews use when they're addressing God. The word is urakevalo. And if you're Hungarian, you know I mispronounce that because I mispronounce every Hungarian word. It's the hardest language I've been confronted with because I don't try to work with Japanese or Chinese. But Hungarian is just very difficult. But she said, which means eternal one. Come. It was that simple. And the Holy Spirit fell that night on that gathering, and, and Holocaust survivors started getting healed. And they, they started experiencing the outpouring of God. And as a result, one of the oldest ones at the time became a believer. And he had been an architect. He was a prominent Jewish architect. He was responsible for the, uh, designing the, the British consulate and the residence for the uh, British ambassador to, to Hungary. So he was a man of standing, and he became a believer. He was talking to some of his Jewish friends about what happened. He was very bold, and he said, Yeshua is the Messiah. And, and they said, well, that's your opinion. And he said, it's not a question of opinion, it's a fact. And the way it came across in Hungarian was incredible. And he said, it's a fact. It's not a question of, do you believe or not believe? Do you feel or not feel? It's a fact. And in this boldness which he he expressed, he was able to share the good news with his Jewish friends and family. And so we discover something, that when you put off that spirit of fear and you put on the the open-heartedness that Yeshua calls us to, then we can bring good news to people in interesting ways. And I want to encourage you. Take to heart what Yeshua said. What's the problem? Is the problem with the harvest? No. What is the problem? The workers. The harvest is great. The workers are few in number. A lot of believers, not so many workers. When you say to the Lord... I'm ready to work. Send me. He'll send you. Now here's the problem. He won't necessarily send you where you want to go. He'll send you where he wants you to go. I think a lot of people, they look up at the harvest and they say, I don't like working in that kind of field. But the Lord wants you to do whatever he wants you to do. 
however he wants you to do it, when he wants you to do it. Now, it's very easy for some people, for all of us to say, well, it's not my personality to be aggressive and assertive and, you know, it's hard for me just to talk to everybody. How many of you can relate to that? It it can lead to that prayer, send him. He's got that kind of personality. He'll talk to anybody. There are people who say, well, yeah, I I could be more assertive if I had a loud mouth, but I don't. The implication is God wants to send loud mouths. That's not the case. God wants to send every kind of person. Shy people. Can I pray for all the shy people? (laughs) All the not shy people are saying amen for the shy people. The shy people are all the ones who are saying, please don't pray for the shy people. (laughs) Lord, give boldness to the shy people that comes from your spirit and not from their personality in Yeshua's name. The harvest is plentiful, the laborers are not. For this reason, pray the Lord and ask the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Now I want you to understand the context of Luke 10. Luke 9, 10, and 11 have to do with Yeshua sending his disciples out to go to other cities that he plans to go to. And he wants them to proclaim the kingdom of God, to proclaim the good news even before he's died and been resurrected. He wants them to pray for the sick. He wants them to to minister uh, with faith everywhere they go. And so his disciples are not, quote, believers. They are followers, people who will take assignments from him and carry out the work that he gives to them. That's the nature of a true disciple. And he's saying to them, pray the Lord of the harvest will send laborers into the harvest. It's not theoretical at that point. They've been going out and coming back. And he's still saying, you've got a problem with your perspective. You don't see things the way I see things. I see it this way. Great opportunity. Many ready. You say, no one's ready. In a few months, they'll be ready. Someone will be ready. And the Lord says, you look at the field the way I see the field, and then you start praying, Lord, send workers for the harvest. And that includes me. Here I am, Lord, send me. Dare you pray like that? Here I am, Lord, send me. That's my challenge to you. Here I am, send me. Now I want to change gears just a little bit and and then connect back to what we started with about being people who spread the good news. I don't think that many of you are familiar with the Jewish philosopher Michael Wishogorod. He died December 17th. He was 87 years old. He had had a prolonged illness. And during the 70s and 80s, he was almost a cult figure among many Christian theologians who loved the way that he reflected on Christian theology and Jewish theology and how he uh, found the incarnational theology that 
uh, that Christian theologians were talking about, how he found that meaningful as a Jew. There's an article about his passing in Tablet Magazine written by David Goldman, who said it was the Methodist scholar R. Kendall Sulin who published the first collection of Wissagrad's essays under the title Abraham's Promise. And Sulin saw hope for Christians in Wishogrod's uh, impassioned portrayal of God's love for Israel, explaining this. God also desires to be the redeemer of the world as the one whose first love is the people of Israel. Let me, let me focus attention on that. Sulin is grasping something that Wishogrod was communicating. It's why they... they, they connected with each other. God chose the Jewish people as a first step in expressing his love for the whole world. So the chosenness of Israel remains. It stands. It continues because this was God's God's starting point. He called Abraham. He loved a man who loved him back. He loved his children, his family. He loved the tribe. He loved the nation that came from him, the Jewish people. And that was a way that God concretely was expressing his love for the whole world. So both Sulin as a Christian theologian and Wishograd as a Jewish theologian were grasping something different from many Christian ideas. Some Christian theologians say Judaism is very narrow in particular. It only speaks of one people, the Jewish people. Christianity is universal and is concerned for everyone. And, and Sulin understood something differently, and Wishogod understood it, and Wishogod wrote this. Because God said to Abraham, I will bless those who bless you and curse him that curses you, in you shall all the families of the earth be blessed. God has tied his saving and redemptive concern for the welfare of all mankind to his love for the people of Israel. So this connection is very clear to Wishogrod. It was clear to Sulan. So I, I want to make it really clear to us. Those of us in Messianic congregations can assert the same thing. We can say God's love for Israel and his love for all the nations of the world are tied together. Do you agree with me? It is not true that God only loves Israel. And it is not true that God doesn't love Israel. He does love Israel. He keeps faith with Israel. And through Israel, he keeps faith with the whole world. We can also say that the coming of Yeshua the Messiah reflects God's love for Israel and his love for the whole world. Do you agree? And we can say that the birth, the life, the death, the burial, the resurrection of Yeshua are the means by which God has extended the covenant he made first with Israel. His covenantal love of Abraham and Abraham's descendants has been extended to include everyone who would trust him and revere him, regardless of what nation they come from. When God promised to to make a new covenant, to extend it, he used the life of Yeshua in order to accomplish that. 
It happened concretely in this way. So when we tell the story about the birth of Messiah from our perspective in Messianic Judaism, we can say that God showed his faithfulness to Abraham and to all Israel by sending Yeshua into the world. It's very important that we grasp this because the way that we communicate our understanding of biblical history will define how we share the good news, how we communicate. Now, Miriam, the mother of Yeshua, expressed the same ideas in what's known as the Magnificat. It's in Luke chapter 1. You can turn there, verse 46 through 55. A lot of English translations say, and Mary said. Well, what was her name? Miriam, yeah. My grandmother's name was Miriam. My younger sister is has Miriam in her middle name. So Miriam's a dear name to me. Miriam said this, my soul glorifies the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has been mindful of the humble state of his servant. From now on, all generations will call me blessed. For the mighty one has done great things for me. Holy is his name. His mercy extends to those who revere him from generation to generation. He's performed mighty deeds with his arm. He's scattered those who are proud in their inmost thoughts. He's brought down rulers from their thrones, but he's lifted up the humble. He has filled the hungry with good things, but he sent the rich away empty. He has helped his servant. If you're following with me, you know his servant Israel. What was Miriam's perspective? Israel is the servant of God. He... He has helped his servant Israel, remembering to be merciful to Abraham and his descendants forever, just as he promised our ancestors. So Miriam is making this proclamation. Messiah who's coming through her is a demonstration of the faithfulness of God to Israel. Messiah is coming because God is keeping faith with Israel. And so we could say that starting with his own Jewish mother, Miriam, thousands and thousands of Jewish people received the good news and formed distinctive communities of faith among the Jewish people of that generation. Many times Christians tell the story this way. Jesus came to the Jewish people, they rejected him. But the Gentiles received him. That's often the story. But I want to challenge that. I want to ask you this question. If we can put Luke aside for just one moment, because there's some question, was he a Jew or a proselyte? There's no question that he knew the things of Jewish life and lived among the Jewish people. But some question as to whether he was born Jewish. But putting that aside, let's ask some uh, questions about the New Testament writers. Okay, how many were Catholic? How many were Southern Baptist? How many were Anglican? Episcopalian? Pentecostal? Assemblies of God? Charismatic? Evangelical? Ah, This is crazy. So who were they? What were they? They were Jews. So think about this. The New Testament was written by Jews. 
Now, were they believers? Of course. Of course they were. So if we, if we tell the story incorrectly, we, we tell it this way, the Jewish people rejected Yeshua. Wrong. It was the Jewish people who received Yeshua. And they went out and brought the good news to the Gentiles and to the Jews everywhere. We've got to get that clear in our minds or we'll never tell the story right. And we'll never know what we were called to be and who we are called to be a part of. Now, this is not my opinion. This is from the New Testament scriptures. Acts chapter 21, verse 20 puts it clearly. Do you see, brother, how many thousands there are among the Jews who believe and they're all deeply committed to Torah? Thousands and thousands. In the book of Acts, in one day, thousands believe. In the book of Acts, another day, thousands believe. In the book of Acts, every day, more Jewish people are believing and believing. And what happened is those Jewish people gathered together and formed communities of faith. And those communities grew up. Now, Christian history picks up hundreds of years later. And I don't want to get into that right now. I'm just trying to look at Christmas time history, if you will. What's happening at the time of the birth of Messiah is this. Jewish people are hearing the good news. Jewish people are spreading the good news. Jewish people are receiving the good news. Acts confirms that. And then John 12, 42 says it as well, even before the resurrection. It says, at the same time, many even among the Jewish leaders believed in Yeshua. The New Living Translation, which I like in many cases, gets this verse completely wrong. Let me read to you their translation. It says, many people did believe in him, however, including some of the Jewish leaders. Well, which is more, many or some? Many. The Greek says many. So why does the New Living Translation misrepresent that? Because of traditions of misunderstanding. Not because of the text. The text says many Jewish leaders. So even if we try to say it this way, it was the Jewish leaders who rejected him, not the Jewish people. That's not accurate either. Some Jewish leaders, some rejected him. But according to John, many Jewish leaders were believing in him. Say many with me. Tell the person next to you, many. Okay, now we're going to try to wrap up here. I, I want you to think about a passage with me from Luke chapter 2. Starting in verse 21, especially verse 21. We'll look at a few verses together. It says, on the eighth day when it was time to circumcise the child, he was named Jesus, the name the angel had given him before he was conceived. Did the angel call him Jesus? What did he call him? 
Yeshua. Now, Jesus is derived from Yeshua in the same way that Moses is derived from Moshe. It's the same, the same process. But the name that he was given was Yeshua because Yeshua means salvation from God. But why on the eighth day? Why does it mention the eighth day? Circumcision. Brit Milah takes place when? On the eighth day. Right. So this is clearly a Jewish activity going on in verse 21. On the eighth day when it was time to circumcise the child, he was named Yeshua. The name the angel had given him before he was conceived. So this tells us something. On, this was a Brit Milah and naming ceremony much like we would experience in, in modern times. When on the eighth day, a, a Jewish child, male child, is circumcised and then given his name. So we can identify with this. Definitely a Jewish baby. And definitely a Jewish family. And then verse 22, when the time came for the purification rites required by the Torah of Moses, Joseph and Mary, it says, what, what was her name? Miriam. Miriam, that's right took him to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord, as it's written in the Torah of the Lord, every firstborn male is to be consecrated to the Lord. This is describing Pidyon Haben, the redemption of the firstborn son. And to offer a sacrifice in keeping with what is said in the Torah of the Lord, a pair of doves or two young pigeons, that's the sacrifice that poor families brought because it was less costly. In verse 25, now there was a Jewish man in Jerusalem called Shimon, and he was righteous and devout. I want you to pay attention to this. What was he? Righteous and devout. He was waiting for the comforter, the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was on him. Who was on him? The Holy Spirit, to which we can say holy smokes. The Holy Spirit was on him. That's what Luke says. Do you get this? That's what the text says. It's an interesting observation. The Holy Spirit was upon him. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit. Who revealed it to him? The Holy Spirit. That he would not die before seeing the Lord's Messiah. You see, Shimon was waiting. He knew deep inside that he would see Messiah. Verse 27, moved by the Spirit. Let me ask again. Who moved him? The Spirit. What moved him? It wasn't a what, it was a who. The Spirit. The Spirit of God moved him. And he went into the temple courts, and when the parents brought in the child Yeshua to do for him what Torah required, Shimon took him in his arms, and he praised the Lord, and he said, O sovereign Lord, just as you've promised, you may now dismiss your servant in peace. And he looked at this little baby, and he saw who he was. Now, Shimon was Jewish, am I right? Now, you sure he wasn't a Protestant? Was he an Orthodox Christian? No. Was he a Catholic Christian? No, he was a good Jewish man. Okay, so what about the story that none of the Jews believe? Wrong. Shimon takes him in his arm and he says, wow, I'm, I'm finished now. As the young people like to say, Lord, you wrecked my heart. 
you know, this has done it. I've got everything I was looking for. I am, as you promised. And then verse 30, for my eyes have seen your salvation. In Hebrew, he's saying something like, I've seen your Yeshua, a form of Yeshua. I've seen your Yeshua. Which you've prepared in the sight of all nations a light for revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. Who is he? The glory of your people Israel. He's not the shame of your people Israel. He's the glory. The child's father and mother marveled at what was said about him and then Shimon blessed them and said to Miriam, his mother, this child is destined to cause the falling and rising of many in Israel and to be a sign that will be spoken against so that the, heart, the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed and a sword will pierce your own soul too. There was also a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Penuel of the tribe of Asher. Now this is a freebie I'm going to give you right now. What tribe was she of? Okay, so much for the, the idea that none of the Jews except for the Levites and the Cohens, knew what tribe they were a part of and maybe the, those of Judah. Asher, she was of the tribe of Judah, a tribe of Asher. So let me ask you another question. What tribe was Paul of? Benjamin, that's right. Okay, so all theology that's been formed that says the, the 10 tribes have been dispersed and lost and, and they are now Ephraim or something. All Ephraimite theology, two-stick theology, two-house theology is built on a false understanding that all the Jews had lost their tribal identity and became something else that got dispersed. Some did, but not all. And the text makes it clear. I'm not making this stuff up. The text says she's of the tribe of Asher. Just say that with me, tribe of Asher. That's what the text says. So put away any false theology that's, that's built upon wrong understandings. The text is clear. She was very old. She lived with her husband seven years after her marriage and was then a widow until she was 84. She never left the temple but she worshiped night and day, fasting and praying. Coming up to them, at that very moment, she gave thanks to God. She spoke about the child to all who were looking forward to the redemption of Jerusalem. She was someone who put on her feet the good news. She was someone who was spreading the good news. Do you know who this baby is? She was saying, redemption is in him. Shimon was saying, I was waiting for Mashiach. Wow. Now we're going to close with something. Benjamin Netanyahu, just a couple of days ago, sent greetings to Christians all over the world to wish Christians Merry Christmas. It was surprising to me. But... A couple of days ago, he, he had uh, 1.5 million likes on Facebook for, for his greeting, and I think it's probably over 2 million right now. And I want to read it to you. I have to take my glasses off because the picture of BB is pretty big, but the text is really small. So he wrote this, from Jerusalem, I wish Israel's Christian community and Christians everywhere a very joyous Christmas and a happy new year. I'm proud to say that Israel is one of the few countries in the Middle East 
maybe the only country in the Middle East where Christians are truly free to practice their faith openly, freely to celebrate Christmas and other Christian holidays. The state of Israel is a beacon of liberty in a Middle East plagued by oppression and extremism. Here, everyone can practice their faith because in Israel, religious freedom is sacred. It's my fervent hope, my fervent prayer that 2016 is marked by greater security and freedom for all Christians across the Middle East. May the coming year bring the blessings of peace and prosperity for all humanity. So on behalf of the people of Israel, on behalf of the Israeli government, I wish all our Christian friends a very Merry Christmas, and I also invite you to come to Israel. So I, I thought it was interesting that Bibi was rushing to wish Merry Christmas to people. Because, you know, in Messianic congregations, we've got people who have different opinions about Christmas. Some are seriously for it. Some are seriously against it. And I say, seriously, lighten up. Join, join Bibi in taking every opportunity to bring good news and goodwill to mankind. So who knew that Bibi would want to make such a statement? Not only that, but rabbis all over the world have been issuing statements like this, Merry Christmas to our Christian friends. And, you know, I'm, I'm not accustomed to this, but I find it interesting that the, the leader of Israel and many many Orthodox rabbis are trying to be publicly recognized as lovers of Christian people. So who, who could have imagined that B.B. would want to say Merry Christmas, y'all? But that's what he said. We're going to close right now with Aaron's blessing. And I want to pray for you that you would be bold and courageous and share good news with our people, bring good news of Messiah. Yivarecha Adonai v'yishmarecha. Yera Adonai panave lecha v'yichunecha. Yisa Adonai panave lecha v'yasem lecha shalom. The Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord cause his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up his face to you and give you peace. In the name of the Prince of Peace, Yeshua the Messiah. Amen. Shabbat shalom. Happy New Year.